Hey, welcome to another edition of Talking Foosball, the Bundesliga show, your source for all things German football. I'm your host, Matt Herman, and this week we are feeling more and more like the elder statesman of the Bundesliga. As one of the very few top men at a German club who's been in his job longer than this podcast has existed, just had to grab his coat and hat and move on. Uh, joining me in stroking his gray beard is, uh, is Nick Wildhagen, who, you know, only went and shared a picture of himself in the second grade or something on Twitter uh, to, in the run-up to this pod to totally mess up my age uh, intro. I mean, wh- what is the vintage of that pic? How old is that? Honestly, I'm, I'm not surprised by the fact that you're asking me about how old that photo is, given that, <laughs> given, given what sort of haircut uh, I'm, I'm sporting there. Because for those of you who haven't seen the pic, I'm, I'm obviously displaying um, a mullet. I'm, I'm, I'm wearing a mullet. Um, Ein Fokuhila. Perhaps. <laughs> uh, yes. Um, it's uh, yeah. It's it's the early nineties uh, throwback haircut uh, of the day uh, in that sense. So I mean, with that haircut, I could have basically moved to uh, uh, die Modestadt Düsseldorf, the fashion capital of Germany, and uh, joined a gang of uh, Opel drivers who drink so much booze until they die in the bitter end. But to answer your question, the year was 1993 Germany were actually still reigning world champions back then and given that the German national team had just lost the Euros uh, in a final against Denmark in 1992 some people were actually still believing the crap that uh, Franz Beckenbauer spouted after the 1990 World Cup win in Italy when he said that Germany were going to be unbeatable for years to come (laughs) well I enjoyed it I, I, I feel like you you know you had uh, some some party in the back, and it, you know, it wasn't all business in the front. It's, it's quite a bit of fringe hanging over your forehead, so you, you're you're really hanging loose at uh, age nine or whatever that is. Seven, um, seven. I'm, I'm seven years old. Seven. <laughs> okay, dig it, dig it. Anyway, uh, we've got a lot to cover in this week's Talking Foosball. Uh, We'll be mulling over Bayern's growing gap at the top of the league. We'll be talking about Stuttgart's slump and plenty about the big shakeup at Hertha BSC. Okay, here comes part one of Talking Foosball, the part where we talk about the best of the match day just gone. This was match day 18, the opening match of the Rückrunde, as they call it, the second half of the season. Um, And, you know, it's tradition, or maybe, you know, it's your perception anyway, that we often start the show off with, with the best in terms of the best teams, what's going on with the title race. But, you know, sometimes the best is... uh, the best story, let's just say. And certainly the best story this week is that of Hertha BSC. The Capital Club, it's a doozy. They capped off their terrible, terrible English week. Uh, they had already you know, had a draw at Cologne and a home loss to Hoffenheim. Uh, they picked up another home loss, this time to Werder Bremen. Uh, and it turned out, as we figured at midweek, to be the last straw for Bruno Labbadia, their head coach. But it was also the final day at work for the club's uh, CEO of the sporting side. That is Michel Preitz, who you know, I also did a lot of complaining about at midweek. Uh, that came actually as a minor shock, though, uh, especially because of what came next. Sporting director Anna Friedrich is taking on Preitz's duties until the end of the season. And guess what? Pal Dardai. <laughs> Pal Dardai is he's back in charge as head coach. He signed a deal through summer 2022. Sekin uh, the, the the you know Hertha Zwei uh, manager, is going to be his assistant. You know, you might have already noticed. Looking at me, I'm I'm, I'm feeling a little dizzy right now. I, I I need a moment. Maybe you can just talk us through uh, how your team. Uh, let's not forget there was a game here. Actually, won this game. So what in the world? <laughs> <laughs> well, one, one last point about second point of Paul Dardai and Arne Friedrich. They actually have a combined total of uh, 666 matches for Hertha, so they are devilish good threesome at the top of the club. Presumably, we'll see about that. But, well, hey, the game uh, it was really a strange case because um, Werder took the lead quite early on through a penalty goal by Davy Selke uh, after Roman Schmidt was fouled in, in the area, stupidly given away penalty kick. And after that, I was really all hurt. Uh, Matthias Cunha uh, 
was clever when he got into the box, got himself a penalty, when he just waited for to feel Manu, John Manuel Mbom's foot and make a contact and go down and get a penalty. But then he went on and missed the penalty because, um, I mean, Chiri Pavlenka had studied his penalty taking, taking in on video and saw, oh, well, hey, hang on, he waits every time, every time he waits and uh, every time he goes to the right. And uh, Pavlenka you know, kept out his penalty, didn't even give a rebound to him. So uh, that was a poor sign of what was to come. But what was to come was that Herder was creating chance after chance after chance. Werder got the goals. I mean, first three goals Werder got, they needed just three shots in total. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> and um, I think Werder scored with all of their first four shots of the game. And that last shot by Josh Sargent actually had an XG of point. Oh, two. That was the second time that he scored a, a worldie from almost the same spot against Hertha. Like he, he you know, it, from he about that place in the Olympia 22, study, 23 yards out at the Olympia Stadion on the on sort of the skinny right. Like something about it. It's it's why it feels most at home. No, but it was um, it was an utterly strange one because Hertha didn't look like a team that uh, that had given up on their coach. It didn't look like they were giving up the match entirely because. They were producing chances, and I mean, John Cordoba, he had, I think, in the first hour, nine shots, uh, or was in, involved in creating nine shots, and Werder created seven shots throughout the entire match. So it was really one of those cases of Werder scoring from pretty much every conceivable chance that they did get, and they didn't get too many, but they scored on all of them. Whilst Hertha Berlin, they were really wasteful. And, I mean, they, they probably should have had three or four goals themselves. And Werder, well, when you score from 22 yards out with a shot, which, you know, I think he had one or two steps as his run-up. So it wasn't really that hard. And it wasn't really that well-placed either. But, you know, Schwallo, actually, you could see when he went down to the ground and picked up the ball from, his, from the net, he would just point it to his eye and say, I didn't see the ball. There was somebody blocking my vision. And, you know, that that was just so many unfortunate circumstances combining against Herta. But I suppose when it when you're in this situation, when it rains, it really pours. And <laughs> whatever you do, you can't seem to get a break. Yeah, I, it, it's interesting that you brought up the sort of, um, you know, motivational factor or the, or the idea that this team had not quit on on Bruno. And I, I would totally agree. I think what was going wrong in this game was nothing to do with motivation. I feel like Hertha were really up for it. I just felt like they were not on the same page as each other uh, on, on numerous occasions. I mean, obviously, the, the, the biggest example of that was when, when Mateusz Cunha, you know, <laughs> completely neglected to see that uh, Krzysztof Piontek had sort of come along with him on, on a break and was all alone in front of the goal. So if, if he had squared the ball to him at one point, uh, it would have been, you know, a really, really easy tap in to make it 3-2. Uh, but there were other points in time in this game where, you know, you would see players really taking on, you know, defenders, or you would see players putting what would have been really useful balls in and their teammates just didn't read it or the teammates just had a completely different idea of what, um, what to do next. And, you know, you know, uh, (laughs) motivation is maybe neither here nor there. If this team never really got to the point where they were, you know, cohesing as a unit in terms of, of the, the kinds of patterns that they were doing in build up, it just never really happened. And that speaks not so well for Bruno. No, and uh, another point that uh, James Thurgood, uh, the guy who hosts the fantasy podcast, uh, made, um, he was actually commentating on that match on the international feed, uh, and he said, Hertha are actually the team that speaks the least of all sides he had seen during his time commentating the Bundesliga this season, and that is telling. I mean, if you don't speak, you don't know what the other guy is doing, and, you know, you're not on the same page. How could you be? So not being all that vocal and having a team of brilliant individual players is not necessarily a recipe for success if you cannot combine all these individual characters and make them work as a team because as as i think it was stefan Rohr and kicker pointed out you know you have players who in, when they are in doubt they rather go for the the next dribble and they go for the spectacular but when it comes to hard graft and defensive work oftentimes they look to the player next to them 
pointing at pointing the finger at him saying why don't you do that job and if you go into matches with that attitude yeah you're going to be found out yeah yeah okay we, we had a number of uh listener questions about this topic and you know for good reason this is a fairly high profile team certainly in in the last couple of years since they've had the uh, involvement of this big money investor las Vinthorst, who you know since he came in and that's really in a lot of ways where the sort of umbruch as as the germans would call it, the sort of you know point of of inflection or whatever that's when Michel Preitz decided to get rid of Pal Dardai, thinking that there, he was sort of standing in the way of the team's development. And, and you know, Dardai at the time was more or less um, accepting of the fact that it, this was a club who was trying to go in a different direction. He, he, you know, after a period of time, stepping away, went back to, you know, his duties as a youth coach. But it always kind of seemed like he was going to be the guy who was waiting in the wings if any of this went wrong. And boy, has it ever gone wrong. Okay, one of the questions we got was from uh, Stefan Niemeyer, who is in Berlin, although he operates a Bayern block. But, you know, he's got some interest in Hertha, apparently. He quibbles with my phrasing in in the promotional tweet that I sent out about this uh, show, about why is this a Hertha Meltdown. He says, getting rid of Preetz without heavy protest from fans is a breakthrough for their investor, Windhorst. And, you know, this gives him a green light for a more or less complete takeover of the club. Only Werner Gegenbauer, the uh, president of the club, is left uh, from, from the sort of old guard. Um, and yes, uh, Stefan, I, I take your point. And in many ways, this is not a meltdown. This is hopefully uh, a new beginning. What I do take a little bit of issue with is this: is this tone that there's some sort of like, um, I don't know, like sinister content here. I get that there's lots of reason to be skeptical of the motivations and skeptical of the sort of plans that an investor, uh, especially one who's really involved in like gross private equity stuff like Ventos. But at the same time, you know, if you are taking over a club or if you're becoming an investor in a club, even in a passive, you know, non-majority way, one of the things you want to do is ensure the best for your new piece of property, if you want to look at it that way. And it's clear to me that something that needed to happen, and yes, I agree with Clincy and did at the time on this, Preitz has got to go. Preitz was not the guy. He never was the guy to get them to the next phase. And I know that there is danger in this. I know that there is, a, you know, having a, a bit of a power vacuum is, is a problem, but I'm thrilled that the guy is gone. I'm not convinced that they have necessarily all the recipe for future success, but that was a step they had to take. I mean, the suggestion here seems to be that Preitz was some sort of opposition to Vintos at the club. And um, I mean, you, can take a look at how Preds acted over the summer when one of those um, tranches of uh, money that De Wintos was supposed to transfer to Hertha was delayed. That obviously meant something for Preds's dealings in the transfer market at the time. He didn't complain once about it. He didn't make it public. That became public at a much later stage. So on the outside, it seems like at least from the outside, it seems like he was a loyal guy to to Windhorst and um, I mean Gegenbauer and Preds. They wanted this sort of investor at the club as well. Having said that, um, Preds, his record over the last eleven years is really checkered, and there have been so many times, so many times when he thought, okay, this has to be it for Michael Preds at Hertha. I remember being on the old Bundesliga Fanatic podcast when the whole Marcus Bubble situation came up. Remember when Hertha went down after having played quite a decent first half of the season and, you know, things started to unravel and Michael Skibbe came in and in the end Otto Rehagel came in. It was a whole mess that Priest got the club into and he didn't get fired for that. Yeah, yeah. So after 11 years and a holy alliance of fuck-ups over those years, it was pretty much time to go now. Yeah, yeah, and it's it's unusual or or I don't take issue, but I, I think it's not necessarily right to characterize getting rid of plates without heavy protests from fans um there's a reason why there wasn't heavy protests from fans there was there was heavy protests pro firing plates plates has never been a particularly popular guy with um with a lot of hair to fans i'm not going to say that it's necessarily a majority of fans wanted him gone uh probably now that is the case but i'm not sure over his 11 year uh, tenure whether how many points in time that was the case uh, he's 
he's not he's he's a spaßbremse. He is a guy who basically tries to you know, cool down any idea that, that anything special could be going on at this club or that expectations could be any higher than, you know, maybe flirting with Europe, but mostly just sort of, you know, keeping things, you know, steady. And, and I understand the context. The guy who he followed, Dieter Hoeneß, who was in charge at Hertha for also a pretty long time, about a decade or so, or maybe a bit more, really, he presided over a really turbulent time as well and at a time because of his personality and the way that he managed things where Fajerta was often in the headlines they had some big financial troubles they bought some expensive players things didn't go well financially and and Michel Preitz was the guy who Werner Gegenbauer the president brought in more or less as somebody to sort of cool things down and the problem was after a while after most of those storms that that Hunas had left behind had passed it was time to, to, to move to a new phase, and, and Preitz just did not ever recognize that. I mean, I really look at this very similarly to, you know, Eintracht had a very, like, steady the ship, steady the ship, steady the ship guy in charge for a long time. Herbert Bruchhagen, he basically was a guy who sort of was constantly preaching financial prudence. He was constantly sort of, you know, telling people not to get too big for their britches. And as it turns out, as soon as that guy left and they brought in someone a bit more ambitious and a bit more competent, i.e. Freddy Bobic, that club has, has skyrocketed. Like, they have gone from being a team who flirts with relegation or gets relegated regularly to a team who either gets into Europe or flirts with Europe regularly. It's not complicated here, folks. If, if you want to go a step further, you can't have a guy like Preetz or Puchhagen in charge. I mean, the problem with Preetz over the years has that has been that he's really bad at interpersonal relationship with coaches. I mean, he's fallen out with pretty much every coach at the club, and he all, did, all the good ones. And he did fall out with Dardai as well in the end, but because what happened in 2019 was basically Dardai said continuously, "Well, you know, if you think that I'm standing in the way of the development of the club, you know, tell me, I'll I'll, I'll vacate my." Yeah, voluntarily. I'm, you know, the club is bigger than me, and I put that first. In the end, Michel Pritz found out, well, we're getting this guy in with all those millions, and I don't think that Paul is the guy who uh, can take the club forward. What it turned out, I mean, what turned out to be the case is that Michel Pritz is actually quite good at uncovering good players at a, you know, sort of a sheep rate that sort of, you buy at sort of a price of, you know, being... 14th or 15th in the Bundesliga and they get you 12th position. What it now also has turned out to be is that when Michael Pritz is given a lot of money and he's told, well, buy the players that get us to the Champions League, he doesn't have a clue of how to do that. Um, it's going to be interesting to see what Paul Dardai and Arne Friedrich can do together and see how they transform Hertha into the image from next season and onwards, but obviously the, the the big issue right now is staying in the league, and that's what what the rest of the season is going to be about for her to. Yep, yep, for sure. Okay, well, let's move on real quick to sort of the details of this. Uh, Dan Simon, uh, Hertha fan in Colorado, uh, asked what changes we're we likely to see in you know lineup formation style of play under under Pal. 2.0. Uh, Rooney, y'all stand back in wall and goal and... Um, <laughs> exactly. Bring Beto back. No, well, hang on, hang on. I mean, I'm not sure that you're going to see anything but what you probably expect to see, which is back to basics, you know, compact defense, nothing too experimental or crazy formation-wise. I mean, oddly, you know, the guy who was, was pals, you know, sort of what people thought of as his sort of tactical guru, Rainer Widmeyer, is now working under Christian Gross at uh, Schalke. So, you know, the idea that that uh, Zeke Neuendorf is in as the, you know, sort of right-hand man, I mean, I don't know enough about Neuendorf's style as a, uh, you know, the Hertha 5 coach, the Hertha under-23s. Under I mean, as far as I could tell, they haven't played in a while, of course, um, they played, you know, a 4-2-3-1, which is a pretty meat-and-potatoes uh kind of formation. It's one that, you know, I think most players in the Bundesliga will know for at some point from their, you know, either youth or, you know, lower league uh, 
playing style. It's nothing. Not, nothing's going to really challenge people in terms of the roles that they have to play. What I think you're really going to see, and and you know anybody who knows these two guys uh, as players, you're going to see a highly motivated team because these guys. <laughs> <laughs> they're not going to be sort of crossing their legs and uh, scribbling things on pieces of paper on the sidelines. They're going to be shouting their heads off uh, at this team, I suspect. It's, it's not like Paul Dardai strikes me as sort of that, that sort of laptop coach that sits behind a laptop with his glasses on and, you know, fiddles with his, you know, <laughs> wise scout account to see how he can get more intensive sprints from this or that player. But, um, you know, what I, what I expect to see is that there's going to be a lot of defending. I, I sort of expect her to, to defend a lot of matches low, uh, having like two, two banks of four, sometimes even maybe five. And that they're going to use the speed that guys like Matisse Cunha and, uh, you know, some of, some of the more speedier players have up front and, you know, break as quickly as they can. And, yeah. uh, you know, use, back to you know, basics. use guys like Doty on the break. That's what he's good exactly. at. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's what he was good at in Düsseldorf. And I mean, for Doty Lukabakio, having such a coach who is such, you know, simple, simple, simple approach to football. I mean, the, the reason why Dardai had to go, according to some her defense back in the day, was that his football was boring to watch. It was too defensive minded. But hey, when you're in this situation, as you currently are, this is the sort of football that will get you results. And that is why Werder Bremen are actually better off on the table than Hertha right now. All right, that is quite enough about uh, Hertha BSC. I mean, uh, I might have to just, uh, you know, start a new podcast or, or join uh, what I think is going to be a new uh, English language Hertha podcast. I, I will certainly <laughs> want to talk some more. Herman on Hertha. <laughs> Stay for the full hour. Yeah, let, let's move on. Let's talk about doing at closer to the top of the table because let's face it, uh, <laughs> Hertha versus Brandon. Uh, not not that close to the top. Anyway, <laughs> Schalke, they're probably the, the other club who has really led the headlines in terms of, of crises. Uh, and, you know, let's be honest about this. They're, they're not going to give up their title as, as the number one crisis club in this league without a fight. Um, they got the dreaded result, Nick, a 4-0 home loss, which you, if you read it in the German style, Schalke 0-4-0. Bayern. This result really looked definitive. Uh, 4-0 results often do. Uh, is there anything that can sort of complexify this impression? I thought it was actually uh, quite a good first half to a certain extent by Schalke. I mean, they had a couple of chances. Uh, Manuel Loya had to pull out a couple of good saves during those first uh, 30, 35 minutes until Bayern took the lead. But in the second half, it was a case of the floodgates opening and Schalke not really ever finding a reply to going 1-0 behind. So Schalke can take a lot of heart from those first 30 minutes for the defensive stability they showed in those 30 minutes. But hey, we've said that so many times this season that, okay, those 30 minutes, they were all right. They had a couple of chances. But uh, when it came time to find a reply after Thomas Müller had gotten Bayern in the lead, they simply didn't have one. And um, yeah, it really, given that Mainz lost, uh, Mainz won on this weekend, Köln won the last match in the English Woche, and with teams like Hoffenheim and Bremen also getting wins this weekend, it, it's starting to look really, really dire for Schalke. Yeah, yeah, it really is, and, and I think that there's, you know, just looking at the tale that the table tells, I mean, there have been signs of life from, from a couple of, of the teams down toward the bit bottom of the table. There's been, you know, Bielefeld picking up a big win at midweek, Cologne getting getting a result here and there. <laughs> Other than Schalke breaking their streak, <laughs> there's not been a lot of signs of life. They've got an eight-point gap to the playoff spot, a ten-point gap to, you know, actual safety. I mean, a lot of people are in their corner. Um, Manuel Neuer, for example, who, you know, Obviously has a lot of roots at this club and probably still counts himself as something of a fan of Schalke. Said that he saw some encouraging things from them in this game and that he's, you know, he's pressing his thumbs, as the Germans say. Another person who I, I suspect maybe is, is uh, is one of our listeners who's asked a question, Vince Novoa in, in El Paso, asking simply, can Schalke stay up? What, what do you reckon? Uh well, yes, they can, but um, the thing is, uh, this weekend there's a match against Werder Bremen uh, at the Wetterstadion. If Schalke loses that match, sees another side in Bremen sort of slipping away towards, you know, safety in mid-table, 
there are going to be fewer and fewer sides involved in that battle against relegation. So if Schalke gets, let's say, three or four wins from the next six matches, they might be in with a chance. If this continues for another four or five matches without any wins and just maybe a couple of draws, uh, you know, I think you can start planning for, for Bundesliga 2 football. And, you know, let's not go into the diesels, but the club is going to face some substantial financial challenges if that is going to be the case. Yeah, yeah. I mean, just, just looking at the weeks to come, I mean, they've got, after Bremen, they've got Wolfsburg, Leipzig, Union, Dortmund, and Stuttgart. Oh. Um, it's, uh, I mean, realistically speaking, you'd say... Uh, at the start of the season, you would have expected them to take the points against Bremen, Union, and Stuttgart, and not the other. So, yeah, three three wins might be enough out of those matches. But, you know, I mean, you have to win all the winnable matches. And honestly speaking, I, d- I don't see that happening at the moment. But, you know, uh, I've been surprised before. All right. Of course, this result puts Bayern well in front in the Bundesliga. They now have a seven-point gap over second place Leipzig. Yeah, one one sort of side issue which uh, which Vaishakh Krishnan in Boca Raton asked in this game, which you know, it's it's I, I think it's entirely natural for Bayern fans, which I assume Vaishakh is, given that he's you know looking all tough with his with his Bayern jersey on and his avatar. When you're winning all the time and you're opening up a big gap at the top, you start to look uh, at sort of issues that that can give you concern for the future as opposed to the present. His is, you know, what is it? Why is Hansi Flick uh, using Niklas Zula as a right back when he had Benjamin Pavar in the squad as well as Saar and Richards fit? Is this his way of, you know, obviously there's been some talk about uh, Hansi Flick and, uh, you know, Bratso, their sporting director, Hasan Salihamidzic, having different ideas about what players to bring in, what quality of players, what kind of experience they have. Is this his way of showing Bratso, like, hey, man, those other guys that you got to play this 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 role, I don't like them. I'm going to play a center back over there. I mean, is this a lack of trust in his options? Is this, you know, maybe he should have included somebody else in his squad who could play that? I don't know what's going on. I mean, Pavar Pavar's gotten a substantial amount of minutes this season, hasn't he? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it, it might just be the case of, you know, he wanted to give, I mean, Saar granted, not given an awful lot of minutes. No. Uh, Richards is, is still very young and, you know, he's, he's still been, linked at times with a with a loan move away uh, to see if he can get some more experience on his belt before it returns to buy so uh, it might it might also just be a case if, uh, for Flick to you know he knew that whatever would happen in this match he was going to still have a lead of four points in the table and was it could have been uh, a case of well you know what um I'm just uh, I'm just looking at how Nicolas Zula actually manages himself managed to conduct himself to conduct himself in this position. If things don't work, we can switch around things. Uh, but it might give him valuable, you know, valuable knowledge for the, for, you know, for the future. And it might give players like Pavar rest uh, if he if he played a lot of minutes going into this match. Yeah, you know, and and if you just look at the scoreline, uh, or or you know, if you want to uh, you know believe kicker and their player ratings, uh, it worked. You know, they didn't give up a goal. Zula got, got a got a zwei uh, a, 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 a German Schulnote, a, a letter grade or a number grade of, of a two. That's basically like a B, which you know in, in the world of kicker is is pretty pretty damn high grade. I, I can't say that it, it blew up in his face. Okay, so we talked about the seven-point gap at the top. Uh, there are reasons for that. Not only uh, were Bayern winners, but <laughs> all of the teams uh, immediately trying to chase them down lost. We can start maybe with uh, Leipzig. They lost 3-2 in Mainz. This was not uh, you know, a lucky punch situation either from, from Mainz, where they sort of you know took their chances and, and you know hope for the best, hope for you know some some screw-ups on the part of Leipzig. I mean, this was... They were worth their win, right, Nick? Yeah, they had the better chances. They had seemingly practiced a lot of set pieces under Bo Svensson of late, and it paid off. They scored two goals from set pieces against the side that only had conceded one goal from set pieces this season, which in itself is is, uh, quite incredible. And, um, yeah, when they came out of the second half after, you know, having been able to equalize twice... 
They got the decisive goal through Leonardo Barreiro, who is only the third Luxembourgian player to ever score in the Bundesliga, and no prizes for telling me who the third guy is if I tell you that the other one is Nico Brown. Yeah, why no prizes? Because everybody knows the guy, the Kaiserslautern legend. Come on, you you know the man. You know the man. I I, I can't say that I do. You got you Jeff, tell Jeff, me. Jeff Slasser? Oh, come on. No, he's way before my time, man. No, I, he played during I, your time. He played in the 2000s. Who's, who's this guy? Jeff Strasser. Okay, yeah. He, he actually left the Bundesliga precisely as I was starting, to, <laughs> as I came to Germany. He, his last year in the Bundesliga was the 2005-2006 season with Borussia Mönchengladbach. And then he left and went to uh, Strasbourg. So I, I was wondering why I had literally never heard of this guy who you tell me was, you know, in, in the 2000s. So yes, anyway, there is definitely there's definitely a line between uh, stuff that I experienced firsthand, which is to say the 2006-7 season forward, and everything before that, which is, you know, stuff I've either read about or maybe watched <laughs> clips of. So, yeah. Shall we return to, to the match after we've taken the detour into Luxembourgian history yeah, in the Bundesliga, not? which... Um, um, I assure you, no other podcast will ever do. No, but it was actually quite surprising to see that Mainz actually was solid in defense for the last, you know, they scored in the 50th minute and they didn't allow Leipzig any sort of really big chances for the next 40. And uh, I was actually listening to the conference on the radio when, when the match was played. And, you know, when whenever you hit, whenever the game came to Mainz, it was sort of like Peter Gulagi is urging his team on forwards, but the ball is back in Leipzig's half. So, and after having watched the highlights, I have to say it, it from you know from the stats, from the highlights, and from what I was listening on the radio, it seemed like a solid performance through and through by Mainz. Yeah, well, they need to uh, find a few more of those because they too are in big trouble down at the bottom of the table. Um, let, let's move on and talk about some of the other challengers who also slipped up. Uh, they have a bit more. Uh, I don't know, a bit more of an alibi, let's just say. They're playing good teams. Leverkusen, they were 1-0 losers at home to Wolfsburg. Uh, Reed Lebach, who scored against the run of play in the first half, and as many have found before, making up a deficit against Wolfsburg is really hard. Uh, Nick, I guess you, I, I can't really blame Leverkusen for this particular. The Wolves, they're, they're, they're really pretty, pretty good at the moment. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't a match of many chances. Uh, it looked like Leverkusen had the uh, the edge in the first half, but they didn't necessarily produce an awful lot of chances. Um, Breed Barker really taking the best chance of the bunch that the entire match produced. And after they he took that, uh, Bayer were really stopped from uh, having their wing play blossom. And um, in the end, that forced them to whenever they finished off the move to finish it off from undesirable positions and that didn't yield any goals obviously so uh, yeah it was one of those really boring to watch but solid Wolfsburg performances which now has gotten them into Champions League spot hey you know that that, that can be your 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 USP if if you're willing to live with that Borussia Mönchengladbach they too are what I would call a, a good team. They took down Borussia Dortmund in a really wild one on Friday night, which, you know, I think we kind of saw the best and the worst from Dortmund in this when they went, you know, lost, but they had they got a 2-1 lead sort of midway through the first half and looked like they were going to sort of, um, you know, have one of those nights where, where you know, magic happened as I, I, I really reckon that did on on their first couple of goals but it just all fell apart didn't it yeah and it was one of those points we've highlighted again and again in the past i mean we started highlighting that after the 2-1 loss to cologne it's the sad piece is stupid um and you know kicker actually wrote and uh, ran a piece today stating that 13 of the 26 goals that uh, Dortmund have conceded have been have come from set pieces which means that relative to the the amount of goals conceded Dortmund are the worst team at defending set pieces in the Bundesliga and you know it, yes they have conceded from free kicks corner kicks and penalties and most other teams have that too but what really is surprising is that Dortmund also have conceded from one throw in and from a goal kick I mean, if you have to be nervous whenever the opposition goalkeeper is taking a goal kick, you know that you have a problem defending set pieces. You really do. But yeah, Gladbach scored three goals. 
three goals of set pieces and every time the marking was just off and you know this got them in the match against Union Berlin it got them in the match against Cologne it has gotten to them in so many matches and still they haven't learned it's utterly surprising and it's I cannot understand it for the life of me because if if you know what what most coaches have told me when I've spoken to them is the first thing that you can sort out relatively easily when you are at a new club and when you are struggling is to work on set pieces both attacking and defensively and obviously when you sort of have these defensive collapses time and time again you should start working on those things yeah, oddly, I, I, if I'm not mistaken, uh, Marco Rosa was asked after the game, having you know scored a, uh, some on some set pieces, you know what, what his secret was, and he was like, "Well, you know, we actually don't work on them at all. So you know, we uh, <laughs> it's it's nothing I'm doing." <laughs> Which I thought was an, an, an interesting answer, but let's let's talk about Marco Rosa for a second. I, I want to follow up because we had a, a listener question from uh, Martin Stein, who you know asked who's the manager to push uh, Beifau Bay forward, and of course the answer to that typically has been you know Marco Rosa of of Borussia Mönchengladbach. But let's just imagine a scenario where Marco Rosa leads Gladbach back into the Champions League next season. And Dortmund aren't in the Champions League. Let's say they're in the Europa League or out of Europe entirely. And he doesn't want to go there. Where do you go after that? Jesse Marsh, presumably. I mean, for him, even if he's at a Rasenballsport club, or club that's actually called Red Bull, taking on Dortmund would be a bigger challenge than being in the Austrian Bundesliga and you know, even if Dortmund fall out of the Champions League for one year, you would assume that they do have the financial might and power to keep hold of most of their best players and add some quality to their squad during the off season in order to, you know, uh, get back into it. So um, I'd, I'd assume that you that he would probably be the highest up on the list if Marco Rosa indeed says, no, I'm not going to do it. Yeah, yeah. I, you know, I, I have I have doubts about that. Uh, not necessarily the plausibility of it, because his name certainly has come up in that context a lot. But I think that's a huge jump to make, to go straight from coaching uh, a team who has, you know, I don't want to say he has no challengers in the Austrian Bundesliga, but being the coach of Red Bull Salzburg is a bit like being the coach of Bayern. You know, you, you the expectation is that you're going to win the league every year. Your resources are on a completely different level than everybody. And if you don't win the league, then you've messed something up. That brings its own set of pressures, but it's really different than going to a league where, um, yes, Bayern are head and shoulders above the rest, but there really are a good three, four, five, six teams behind Bayern who are all in a dogfight every season. And Dortmund are generally thought of as the team who should be coming second, but are kind of losing grip on that, let's just say, this year. I think it would be a really tough job for him. I, you know, Maybe it's me also as, as an American wanting to see a coach like that take on something a bit more manageable first, and I don't want to see him crash and burn. You know? I mean, yeah, there's definitely chances of that, but um, you know, he knows the Bundesliga. He's been at RB Leipzig before, so he, I think he's aware of the things that go with the job at Dortmund. So he's he's going to make a well-informed decision if he's ever offered that position, I would assume. All right, let's leave it right there. We'll be right back. Okay, here comes part two of Talking Foosball. This is the rest of Match Day 18 coming up here. Quick hits after quick hits is what we're doing now. SC Freiburg, uh, they were 2-1 winners over uh, VfB Stuttgart. Stuttgart have had an absolutely horrible English week. And uh, Freiburg, you know, they, there's there's been a dip, but they're, they're right back to their uh, winning ways after that big streak that they were on uh, up until about a week ago. Nick, what did you make of this one? 2-1 is not a, a, a massive win. They played also quite a close game, uh, the first game of the season. This was also a pretty pretty close game. What what did you make of this? I think Stuttgart were really unlucky in, in the sense that they hit the woodwork for the 11th and 12th time this season during that match. Uh, they were just charging at the Freiburg goal for the entire second half and they, they didn't reward themselves and the XG clearly states that Stuttgart actually had a lot of 
lot more better chances than uh, than Freiburg. I think it was 1.5 compared to 3. Yeah, they doubled them up. Stuttgart should have run out uh, victoriously uh, from, from the Schwarzwald Stadium, but alas, they didn't take their chances and now they have to start looking at what's behind them rather than, you know, maybe launching an outside uh, <laughs> challenging uh, run for, for the Europa League because obviously on 22 points, you're not that far away from Bielefeld and uh, Cologne in uh, for a 15th and 16th. Yep, yep. Uh, this was one of, you know, <laughs> quite a few missed or saved penalties uh, this weekend. We, we mentioned the one in the uh, Hertha Werder game. There was one in this game. You know, Nicolas Gonzalez. There was one in uh, a game that we'll, we'll bring up later with uh, Reese Tigwell. You know, this is another interesting area where I think uh, coaches and individual players are realizing that there are marginal gains to be made uh, when it comes to uh, saving penalties. I mean, I, I, I don't want to say all these penalties were particularly well taken. A lot of them weren't. But, you know, if you can stop those penalties, that's that's a great way to ensure your team gets a win instead of a draw or, uh, you know, something else. Let's talk about Eintracht Frankfurt. They were pretty great this weekend. They were playing, of course, not a good team. They were playing uh, Armenia Bielefeld in, in Bielefeld at the Alm, and it was a 5-1 win for Eintracht. This is this is turning into a, a really interesting moment for that team because, you know, they had underperformed for much of the first half of the season. Uh, in the last few games before the end of the, of the Hinrunde, things were starting to look up. Um, they've had a pretty soft schedule the last few weeks, but they've mostly taken advantage of it. And, you know, they find themselves up in sixth. Let me ask the question that we got from uh, Jasmine Baba in, in Hessen. Is this the season where Eintracht can break into the Champions League spots? Or, or do you think that they're more likely to fall away? <laughs> well, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't put the apple wine on ice just yet uh it is best enjoyed cold though it, it is it is but, but you know I'm, I'm talking about the celebratory apple wine yes granted frankfurt haven't haven't lost in the last seven they actually have five wins and two draws and now they've got uh Hertha, hoffenheim and Köln coming up so so those are the the you know if, if they are taking nine points from those next three matches you could potentially see them having an outside chance but having said that um you would also need Dortmund Leverkusen Wolfsburg and uh Mönchengladbach thank you uh to to mess up uh at least two of those teams to mess up and uh I, d- I don't think that's going to happen uh unfortunately for the Wolves because uh for for the Eagles and uh uh, yeah, I I think they are they are looking pretty 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 good for European finish though I would say. Yeah, yeah. No, I I think that that what's really opening the door for them is teams like Dortmund um, sort of stumbling on on repeated occasions. Um, I I've always liked uh, Frankfurt this season, despite the fact that their results were not always there. I always looked at them and thought that there was a good team hiding in there. I, I certainly am even more convinced now that they have uh, Luka Jovic at their disposal and knowing that even though he's making fairly brief appearances for the most part at the moment, uh, he's he's making something of them. I think that when he gets back to sort of full fitness and, and ready to, to go 90 every weekend, I think this could be actually a pretty scary team. I think uh, I'm not going to necessarily say that I, I think they will make the Champions League, but I think that the chances are, are not bad at all. They're only, you know, two points off it at the moment. That's that one good week and a bad week for the, the teams ahead of them that would get them right in there. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's really tight at the moment. And uh, as for Jovic, it's quite an incredible return. I mean, he's, he scored three goals in, what was it, 76 minutes? And, uh, you know, after he left Frankfurt the last time, he's played 32 matches for Real Madrid and only scored two goals. And uh, once he got back to Frankfurt, he uh, seemingly, you know, looked like he never had forgotten how to score. Quite incredible. I know. I know. And I, I love watching him play, too. He just... <laughs> I love his style. I, I... Anyway, let's now move on to uh, a, a game that needs rescuing. Let's turn to Reese Tigwell. So, Reese, I hear you're here to talk about Hoffenheim and Cologne, which, you know, if this is the segment that we tell everyone it is, uh, rescued from oblivion, it's not the number one match of the week, but we did get goals. 
you know, I guess that doesn't really stand out on a week like this in the Bundesliga. But a 3-0 win for Hoffenheim, their, their second win of the week. Uh, how did they get it done? Yeah, we did get goals. That's right. We got two penalties from Kramerich. Um, brilliant finishes from both for both of them. And a lovely flick from Baumgartner, who scored the second goal in the first half. But actually, there was Köln at 2-0 down. Uh, they had a corner in which Wolf headed it on. It actually come off the post. And I think had that gone in, it could have been a different story. But although there was some sort of fight back from them in the second half, on the whole, they didn't really show up. And Hoffenheim would deserve their win. And I'm not sure if you'd agree, but I think there could have been more goals from Hoffenheim. And as well, they had a missed penalty from Modest, which was brilliantly saved by Baumann. And I think that missed penalty pretty much summed up their day, really. Yeah, yeah. We went. Uh, we might need to circle back on Anthony Modest at some stage. He's 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 a symptom of something larger, I think. Uh, but let's talk about Hoffenheim first. Let's talk about the winners. Let's talk about um, Andre Kramaric, perhaps. I mean, I heard on Talking Football Fantasy at the end of last week for you fantasy players. Uh, hopefully, you listened to the boys and their advice that when Kramaric gets scoring, he tends to keep scoring. He goes on streaks with you know you know one, two, three goals over you know four, five, six matches. You know, two penalties, of course, are not the most spectacular way to uh, do it. But as you said, Kramerich penalties are of a higher quality than most. Uh, <laughs> is he really, you know, the big reason for this mini upswing from Hoffenheim? I guess they what took seven points out of nine this week. I think he is. I think he's absolutely crucial to, to Hoffenheim. So he's got a brace in midweek and, an, and another one today, as we mentioned, that's now four in two games. Um, and he's already got 12 goals this season now in just 14 games because he's missed a few through injury, which is a number he actually managed last season where he also had injury problems. I think he's well on his way to um, equaling or surpassing his best of 17 goals in the Bundesliga season for Hoffenheim. Um, I think another a player who's been who we saw glimpses of today was Baumgartner. And it's only his second season playing in the Bundesliga at just 21. I'm not sure what you thought about this, but I thought he would really kick on this season. He's a talented individual. We've seen glimpses of his talent, but he hasn't been that consistent, especially against the bigger teams. Sometimes he can just disappear a little bit as a player. But I think hopefully we now start to see that in the games coming forward. Yeah, yeah. I, th- I think the way you just described uh, Christoph Baumgartner is kind of how we could describe Hoffenheim. Um, they, <laughs> they, they show flashes of being a really good team. You wonder, what are they doing down there at the bottom of the table? But, you know, if you watch them more than that, uh, you definitely will, will see some, some stinkers as well. I mean, just real quick before we move on to talking about Cologne, Hoffenheim have Bayern, Frankfurt, and Dortmund coming up in their next three. <laughs> That's not easy. Do you have much trust that they will be able to, uh, you know, take some points from those matches? Are they going to be sort of continuing their, their upswing? I mean, don't have to go too too much into it, but just wanted to get to check your temperature. Like you say, it's definitely going to be tough. I mean, Bayern, they've already beaten once this season, we should add. Uh, sure. Frankfurt are a team in very good form at the moment. So that was probably looking at it on paper. It would have been the easiest game, but given their form, perhaps not so. And Dortmund, uh, again, a team struggling. Um, hey, two two weeks from now, Dortmund might be back on, uh, you know, they might be back spitting fire. Who knows? Yeah, you just don't know what you're going to get with them either. However, if you're going to pick up points against them, then, against them, then now is probably that best time. All right. Um, quickly on Cologne, you know, we saw them at midweek get a very nice late win over Schalke. That sort of uh, gave them some hope going into this last match, or last match of the match day, thinking, you know, you know, Hertha lost, Bielefeld lost. They could have really taken a jump up the table if if they had gotten a, a win in this game, and instead they came out and got comprehensively beaten. Taking that into account, also thinking about the ideas that coaches getting fired, there was a very big one this weekend. Is Gisdol on that chopping block? We've been asking this a long time. <laughs> we were only on here a few weeks ago discussing this. Uh, it, it's not looking great at the moment. I think he bided his time a little bit with that uh, important late winner from Tillman when they obviously won against Schalke in midweek. I think the crucial game is going to be next Sunday. They're playing Armenia, which is arguably their biggest of the season so far. I think if they lose that game, then I think Gisdol really could be in danger of losing his job. And winning that game is really not going to be easy because I think something I mentioned on here, and it's still the case, is that 
Cone still have not won a home game since before the hiatus when they beat Schalke back in February. And it really is concerning, to be honest. It's really concerning. And, I, you know, I don't want to necessarily just put, um, you know, Marcus Gisdol on blast here because there's a lot bigger problems. You know, obviously there's a lot of talk when when uh, Bruno Labbadia lost his job uh, along with his boss, uh, Michel Preitz at Hertha, about the sort of problems with squad management or, or putting together a squad that didn't really fit together, it, 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 the pieces didn't fit. Some folks might say that about what Horst Heltz has done at uh, Cologne, specifically in uh, the attacking department. I mean, Anthony Modeste, great Cologne player about four or five years ago, <laughs> hasn't done a lot in the interim time to put the faith in him to replace uh, the goals that you you know lost in selling John Cordoba or that you, you know, thought you were going to get out of, you know, Augustinson, or sorry, Anderson rather. That's not too smart. They basically look at times like they're a team who doesn't have a tip to their spear. And I don't see where their goals are going to come from. No, I think that's right. I think they have had some bad luck with Anderson. Obviously, he's out, has been out injured and is still out injured. But Modeste hasn't been the same player since he returned from China. Trusted a lot in Tillman, who, who looks good in glimpses, but he looks too young to be leading the line. I mean, he's, he's only 18 and he's only scored two goals. And if you look at the lineup today, they played without a recognized striker. They went for Duda and, and Wolf, and Tillman and, and Modest were only brought off the bench. So Tillman is young, but does that tell you what Gisdol really thinks of Modest now, given that he's not starting him when he's going for two, two midfielders up front? Yeah, I, I mean, Knowing their history, I've seen a lot of uh, of Wolf and Duda, and I there are things to like about both of those players, but neither one is an out-and-out striker. There might be a winger, they might be a withdrawn striker, they might be a 10 in some cases, but they are not who you want uh, leading the line. All right, Reese. Um, thanks for, for making this interesting once again. Uh, it's, it's not always easy, but you're doing it quite well. Thank you very much. I'll see you next week. All right. I, I would say that uh, Hoffenheim and Cologne are now safe from from whatever danger was befalling them this week, and uh, I, I think that was that was uh, an able rescue job. Let's round things out with uh, Augsburg and Union. This was a two-one win for Augsburg. Yeah, things are not going all that great for Union at the moment. They've they've gotten you know two losses on the trot. Andrew and Melbourne. He asks. As good as Union have been, is European action next season too soon? Uh, love what they've done. Want to see them do well regardless. Obviously, it, at the moment, right now, they, the question is answering itself. They're in eighth place. They're not in the European place. Maybe the, this is all going to be moot in, in a few weeks. But, you know, I still think that they're a pretty quality team. And I think that not a lot separates them from the teams ahead of them immediately. What do you reckon? I think they're the sort of team that could grind out results in the group phase. And, you know, there's a lot of experience in that team. I mean, they've got players like Max Kruser, uh, Anthony Uche, Christian Gentner. Yeah, when's, is Kruser back so, yeah, soonish? I mean, soonish, I think another two or three weeks from now. Um, obviously, they haven't they haven't been losing an awful lot of matches. I mean, that's uh, the, the two losses they've had now is the first time this season that they've lost two on the trot, which... Um, says something um and they were unlucky in this match as well given that they they missed a penalty uh marcus ingvitson didn't didn't convert the, the penalty union were given that would have put them up to 2-2 level pegging so surprising win for augsburg this in in that regard um but yeah i mean uh, union berlin whatever they do in the table as long as they're having more points than the 41 points they took last season they're probably going to be happy with the season yeah, yeah, I, I totally agree. I mean, I think that their fan base is great, first of all, and, and deserves uh, to see a, a good team and deserves to see a team that, that's getting wins. I think they would also tell you that uh, getting to Europe would be more of a anomalous sort of fairy tale situation than a situation that, that they have any expectation for or, or would necessarily even think would be building toward something in the long term. I remember when Jens Keller was the coach at Union Berlin and they had this first pretty really good half of a season and there was that um, 
Banner at the Alta First Rye, where it said, Scheiße, wir steigen auf. Yeah, yeah, there is a nice gallows humor uh, situation with their fans. Which translates sure. to shit, we're getting promoted. And, um, you know, they, they've always been a, a club and, uh, and a fan base that, that prides itself on being, uh, you know, a principled and outspoken and, um, Yeah, standing for the right values, and that is more important to them than, you know, getting a place in Europe. Yeah, well, I think they've tarnished a bit of that over the past week, uh, but oh. we've, we've, we've covered that ground a fair bit in terms of uh, the way that they try to say, far be it from us to have anything even somewhat racist associated with us when we can all hear the tape. That's all I'm going to say. Well, I, I, what, what, what I'm going to say about this verdict by the DFB is that um, when you see that Oliver Baumann was fined 8,000 euros, I think, for calling the referee the 12th man, and you see Marcus Turam being fined 10,000 euros for spitting at an opponent during the times of COVID, and then you see Florian Hübner being fined 20,000 euros, you know, you wonder what those non-racist words must have been for them to be worth 20,000 euros in a fine. Because fines are also based on what a player is actually earning. And I would assume that Turam at Gladbach and Oliver Baumann at Hoffenheim are better wages than he is at Union Berlin. Far be it from me, no. Have, uh, you know, I haven't seen the players' bank accounts, but I would assume they he is the, the worst earner out of the three of them. And uh, I mean, what were those words? And that... that That hasn't been relied to us. And I mean, what the DFB wrote in the verdict is basically that um, Amiri couldn't to an absolute certainty state that the words he that Hubner was accused of saying, that he did say those words, it could have potentially been something else. I, th I think it's sort of like trying to, trying to, um, you're giving the player two two game a two game suspension because you think okay we cannot sort of prove a racist remark here but at the same time you slap him with such a heavy fine so you are seeing as an organization that takes bold actions against racism i don't think it works like that i think you either have to take a stand or you either have to you know say that the player didn't say those words and you know punish him a lot less than with those 20,000 euros i think this sort of middle ground thing isn't working Yeah, and the lack of clarity at the end of the day is extremely unsatisfying, uh, especially when it comes to a, an issue as serious as this. All right, we're going to wrap up the show, but we had one last question, which I thought was pretty interesting, from Mike Mulcahy in Cincinnati, who, you know, asked a pretty simple, straightforward question. Uh, what manager do you think has done the best job this season? I put it I put it here in the show for a reason. Um, well, um always impressed by Christian Streich always 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 impressed by Christian Streich um, I think uh, he makes so much out of very very little resources but I think you you might you might you might go for another coach than me there since you've put it here oh I mean I think Urs Fischer has has got to be the front runner for it at this moment I mean there's no telling where Union are going to end up at the end of the season but if they they end up in eighth or above I think that's a, a huge achievement Uh, at least as big an achievement as, as Streich at Freiburg. I think those two guys are probably in, in the lead. If Wolfsburg get in the Champions League, then uh, Oliver Glasner probably has to be in the conversation as well, uh, despite the fact that his teams don't play very attractive football. Uh, you know, it's, it's punting above above their weight. Yeah, and, you know, additionally, I would also throw Uwe Neuhaus's uh, hat into the ring if Amelia Bielefeld stays up, mm. as they currently look to do. But, hey... We're, we're only halfway, but the fact that they are not down there on, on the same sort of quagmire as Schalke after 18 matches is actually quite impressive in itself. Yep, yep. I think uh, Pellegrino Matarazzo has has a, an outside chance as well, considering that's a promoted side who were down in, in the Zweite the Bundesliga for a couple of years and uh, were not um, expected to be uh, solidly mid-table, which is what they are now. So, yeah. Okay. And maybe Paul Dardai after those 60 <laughs> undefeated matches exactly. towards the end of the season. When we get into the Champions League. <laughs> oh, I love you. I love you, Nick. <laughs> All right, that is it for this edition of Talking Foosball. 
It was produced, as always, by Aiden Rantoul. Really great to be back in the saddle with you, Nick. It's great being on. And uh, by the way, I, I got my first COVID jab today. And uh, what I can tell you is that I, I don't feel any 5G waves streaming through my body right now. I feel perfectly normal. So uh, if you get the chance, go and take yours too. Just you wait, just you wait. Maybe that only happens after the second shot. Oh, Bill Gates tricked me! <laughs> you can follow Nick on Twitter, at Norm Musings. Uh, don't forget to listen to Talking Foosball's Historic Match Day Moments series on our Patreon page. Uh, that's one of the real gems of this season. Uh, we hope you'll consider supporting us over there. It's only a few bucks, quid, euro clams, whatever, a month uh, for a lot of extra content. So uh, give, it a, give, it a, give it a look. If you want to contact me, I'm at Mr. Matt Herman on Twitter if you want to contact us it's of course at Talking Foosball please subscribe to the pod please rate the pod and rate it highly and uh, tell a friend about us this is Nixon Molly Alton.